Hello and welcome to the new episode of When the Bible Wasn't There. My name is Marco. And I'm Josh. So what are we going to be talking about today? Well, today we're discussing how Israel wanted an open relationship with God and how often we try and do the same thing. All right, let's get into it. So this week we're going to take a look at chapter 17 of Exodus and we're going to pick up the story right where we left off. Yeah, so in the past episodes, we have been seeing a recurrent theme. Every single time that God's people need something, they want water, they want food, they blame God, and they blame Moses. Yeah. And, you know, this last episode that we did, they not only blame God, they want to kill Moses, but they make a very interesting question. Well, they say, if God is here with us, Mm -hmm. why don't we have water? If God is caring for us, why don't we have water? Why are we not having a good time? Yeah. And, you know, this is something that happens to us as humans as well. You know, when we're going through a rough spot, we kind of question God and say, well, you know, if God is really here, why am I suffering? Yeah. You know, why, if God is so good and powerful, why am I having a very bad time? And, you know, we saw last week that the first reaction that they had is, Guess what? We want to go back. We want to go back. If things are not good with God, uh, let's go back. When things are not good with the Egyptians, let's go to God. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're in this kind of open relationship Yeah. where they want the benefits, only the benefits. Of, of you know, being with God and the seeming benefits of being with the Egyptians. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that, yeah, we do that all the time. We want the benefits of relationship with God. Mm-hmm. But we also like some of the things we do in sin. Mm-hmm. We, we like both, you know, we like going to church, we like doing this, we like singing the songs, we like feeling like God is with us, but you know, we like doing those other things too. Absolutely. And then what happens later, you know, Moses is so ashamed of this terrible sin that they do, that he creates a memorial to remind them that they created, that they made this great sin for them not to fall back into this. Yeah. However, they make a decision. They don't want God in their lives. I mean, that's what they've been saying this whole time with their actions. You know, we don't trust you. We don't value what you've done for us in the past. You know, we can't really see a future with you because Mm -hmm. they're worried about their future. When they run out of food, they're like, what are we going to do? They can't see a future with God. They can't see his caring hand leading them. So they're like, we're going to do this on our own. And God is mature enough and honors us enough and loves us enough that when we say that, he says, all right, I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to give you your space. Yeah, It's difficult for him. You know, because he loves us. Yeah. But he has to make certain sacrifices because he loves us and he wants us to be free. He doesn't want the love to be forced. He wants it to be natural. Yeah, putting it a little bit poetically, there's a song that says that God's love is like an open door. Mm. You know, like it's he's never going to shut the door and force you to stay with him. And he's never going to close the door so you can't come back. Yeah. So, you know, after this, something interesting happens. They have just scraped committed this great sin and all of a sudden they're attacked and you know and as soon as they are attacked you know the attackers have certain characteristics and the first one is that they are very cowardly yeah they attack the weakest the the children the women the people who are tired in the back the weary Mm -hmm. you know the heavy laden yeah those are the ones that get attacked yeah and they're the ones farthest away from the cloud they're the ones that are super tired and that day Israel has a big loss. Yeah. And it's the weakest that, that lose. So then, you know, God tells Moses and, you know, Moses goes to God and says, you know what, you know, things are very bad. Um, what do we do? And God tells him, look, you have to go ahead and divide the tribes, you know, create an army and, on, and tomorrow you go ahead and fight with them. 
And the next day comes and we can see that Moses, he's not on the battlefield, but he's doing something just as important. Yeah. He's on a hill with Aaron and Ur and they're, they're up there and Moses is praying. Yeah. And it's just not like any type of prayer. You know, he's interceding for God's people. They just committed the great, this great sin. And he's saying, you know, God, forgive them. You know, I know they're bad people. I know they blame me. I know they blame you, but we're in a big, we're in trouble, you know, help them. And here we have a lesson. When we come to God, even if we have sinned, it doesn't matter what we have committed. If we have sinned, we can come to him. And God is so loving that even though we ask for our space, he's willing to come and to give us a victory. Exactly. And that's where that, you know, open door comes back in. Yeah. That you can go to him in your time of need and say, Lord, I need you. Yeah. And he's going he's gonna to be there. Yeah. And we see that they're winning the battle. Yeah. But here's the thing. Moses is giving everything. You know, it comes to a point where he's so, so tired. You know, he's with his hands extended toward heaven. He's interceding for God's people so they can win. And he's getting tired. You know, he's giving 100%. And his hands, they start to fall. And the moment that happens, Israel starts to lose. Yeah. And then Aaron and her, they have to take his hands and lift them up. And lift them up. Yeah. You know, they're there to support him. They see him trying to lead the people. They see him trying to pray for the victory. And, you know, some of us, if we saw someone with their hands lifted up in church, we might say, what are they doing? Don't yeah. they know they look weird? You know, you're <laughs> supposed to fold your hands, keep your head down. Yeah. But here we see God is saying, no, keep your hands up. Yeah. You know, maintain that connection with me. Keep pouring your heart out to me. I want us to have this communication. Yeah. And, you know, he's interceding for God's people. But, you know, one of the interesting things here that we see is that before they were divided, people versus Moses, leadership versus the people. And now amidst the crisis, the crisis is able to unite them yeah. in a single purpose. And they have two elements. They have faith, interceding prayer with God and for the people, and they have action. They have action. Yeah. Because in order for victory, you need both. Exactly. And that's what C.S. Lewis says in one of his quotes. He says, regarding the argument of faith and works, mm -hmm. it is like asking which blade in a pair of scissors is most important. Wow. You know, you can't cut if you only have one. They you need both. And, you know, we read that faith without works is dead. And, you know, if you just have works, and it's all showmanship. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So you have to have both. And that's what the Israelites have here. They have the faith. And they're willing to step forward into battle. They're willing to put their best effort to cooperate with God. Absolutely. But now let us take a step back. And let me propose that Amalek, the ones that attack the children of Israel, represent sin, represent Satan. And let us go ahead and do a little bit of an analysis on what is going on. You know, the first principle that we see here is that sin attacks you. At your weakest point. At your weakest point. And we could even say, when you're furthest away from God. Mm -hmm. Look, these people are in the back. The presence of the Lord is leading in the front. And the Malachites come and attack them. And it's so true that sin will get you when one, when you're furthest away from God, when you distrust God. Yeah. When you say, God, I'm not sure if this relationship is right for me. I'm going to take my space. You're opening the door for Satan to come in. Yes. And you know, one of my favorite authors, uh, Tim Keller, he says the following, he says, sin grows when we think we deserve something from God. Godliness grows when we remember we are debtors to God. And Amazing. this is exactly that what happens, you know, before they were 
questioning God. They were thinking, we deserve the good things from God, only the good things. And this is how sin developed. And this is when the Amalekites come yeah. and attack them, especially when they're at their weakest point. But why are they in their weakest point? They are in their weakest because now they have stopped trusting in God. Exactly. And you know, and now this crisis leads them and takes them running back to God for help. And we see that they achieve the victory. Yeah. They are victorious. The Amalekites run away. And God tells Moses something. He says, you know, record this in the book. Yeah. And recite it again at, in the time of Joshua. Yeah. You know, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25, verse 17, look what it, what it says here. Starting with verse 17, it says, Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt. You know, this was the first attack that they had. Yeah. The very first one. And this was because they were not trusting God. But then it tells them that they're supposed to remember this. I think that we're what we're trying to get at here is that you need to remember what sin does to you. Yeah. The effect it has on you, when it attacks you, what it looks like. You have to remember, because if you remember, you're not going to let yourself get into a state where you can be attacked again. Right. You're going to keep yourself strong in the Lord. You're going to keep your arms lifted up in prayer. You know, you're going to maintain that connection. You're absolutely right. When we read in verse 18, look what it says. It says, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee. God is trying to have them remember, look, it was an attack. It was just not any attack. He attacked your weakest points and when you least expect it. So he's kind of telling them, look, sin is like a roaring lion or Satan yeah. seeking whom he may devour. And, you know, this is the concept that, you know, that God is trying to, to put in their minds on how sin works, how Satan works to conquer you. But, you know, let us take a step back and let us do a little history on Amalek and see where this name comes up. Well, it's really interesting because if we look at it in Genesis, we're going to see that they have a familial connection to the Israelites. Yeah. They're relatives. Absolutely. You know, we read in Genesis 36 and 12, and basically here it establishes that Amalek was a grandson of Esau. And Esau, as we know, was the brother of Jacob. The and son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. So the Amalekites were very well aware of who God is. Yeah. They probably had family members who had told them yeah. who God was. This was in their DNA to know who God was. Yeah. So here we see that even when they were coming up from Egypt, they already knew who God was. Mm -hmm. You know, they they heard of the wonders that God had done in, you know, in Egypt, you know, the plagues and how God had delivered them. And yet they were mocking the nations that were scared of them. Oh yeah. They were saying our gods are better than that. We can go and this this is Israelite God, he's nothing for us. We're gonna go and we're gonna we're gonna attack and we're gonna win. Yeah. So when we continue to read in Exodus, God gives them a specific order and the order is you need to destroy them you know this these people will be destroyed from the face of the earth and then they will not be remembered ever again that's interesting because we can again parallel it to sin yeah there will be a point when christ returns that sin will be no more mm -hmm. it's going to be wiped out sin will never happen again and even the remembrance of it will be gone god is saying here you need to remember your sin but remember that I'm coming to wipe everything clean. I'm coming to make all things new, to wipe away every tear. Yeah. And, you know, let us go a little bit forward because we want to go and see in what other instances Amalek is mentioned in the Bible. So when we go to, to the book of Samuel, 
we see an instance in which, you know, Saul is the king. And God directs Saul to go ahead and kill the Amalekites. To wipe them out. To wipe them out. Don't keep any gold. Don't keep any livestock. You need to destroy them. Yeah. Because this is what was foretold. Mm -hmm. But what does Saul do? Well, you know, the Amalekites were very wealthy. They had a lot of gold. They had animals. And Saul says, well, how can I obey God and get a little bit of the benefits of the Amalekites so I mm. can actually serve him? And, you know, when Samuel comes and asks him, what is this that I hear? I hear goats, sheep, and, goats sheep and everything. Yeah. And Saul's first response is, you know, don't worry, Samuel, you know, I got this. You know, these are actually for the house of the Lord. They're for sacrifice. Yeah. You know, it's something good. You know, I kept just the good stuff. I kept the good stuff and we're going to use it for God. Yeah. But we see here that God has nothing to do with the Amalekites. Samuel says, obedience is better than sacrifice. Yeah. You know, don't mingle the things with, of sin with the house of God. Yeah. He, it's amazing because he thinks that he can serve God, mm -hmm. give him what comes from the Amalekites, something that is in direct disobedience to God. Yeah. And we see that this sin, it grows and it festers yeah. in Saul's life. You know, he eventually ends up losing his connection with God. He goes mad pretty much. Yeah. He ends up looking to other sources for spiritual comfort. Yeah. He goes to the witch of Endor and they conjure up Samuel mm -hmm. so that he can speak to him again. But it's not really Samuel. Yeah. And he just goes down this dark path and it kind of starts right here. It does because here we see that Saul wants only the benefits of having a relationship with God. He's pretty much telling God, you know, um, I will obey you, but I will obey you only partly. You know, if you have something good to offer, I will take it. But when things go wrong, I will go right over here with the Amalekites. You know, I will kill the king. Yes, you know, the bad people, I will kill them. But I will keep their women and children. They're, they're good people. I will keep the lambs. I will keep the sheep. I will keep the wealth. And by the way, I will use the animals to sacrifice them to worship you. And he thinks there's something good to gain from disobeying God, from going contrary to what God has said. But he thinks it's so small, so innocent, that it can't possibly grow into anything worse. Yeah. And this is what happens, I could say, when people raise exotic pets. You know, a lot of the time, you know, they'll raise them from when they're young and they don't understand that these are still wild animals. You know, everyone is obsessed with that show Tiger King right now. <laughs> yeah. But there are stories of people who raise wild cats and then get mauled and killed by these cats. Yeah. Or even there was a story a few years back of a lady who had an, an ape. Mm -hmm. And she raised it like her child, but then one day it just clawed her face. Wow. So it has this tendency of attacking you. Even a small sin can grow into something that can attack you. Yeah, and that's the thing because they don't get these pets when they're already grown. Mm -hmm. They they get them when they're very small, inoffensive. You know, you say to them, wow, it's very cute. You know, this does, this could never hurt me. But the nature of sin has a big potential to kill you. It doesn't matter if you see it cute. It will kill you. And you know, there are many cases, you know, there was this one uh, guy in the UK. Um, he was very fond of pythons. You know, later on he had kids and these snakes grew. And later on he finds his son strangled by the snake. Tragic. I mean, it doesn't only affect you as a person. It affects those around you. Exactly. And this is what happens to King Saul. You know, his sons die. He dies. His whole kingdom is thrown into a little bit of chaos because their king isn't connected with God. Yeah. And his whole line of succession is destroyed. The throne passes from his family. 
all because he didn't maintain his relationship with God. So if we jump forward in the story of Saul and, you know, elaborate on it a bit more, we see that, you know, he's fighting the Philistines, mm-hmm. but eventually he starts trying to fight David too. Yeah. You know, he wants to kill David. He's jealous of David and David has to run away. And what happens is that w- one day, one battle, Saul is fighting the Philistines and he ends up losing and he kills himself. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, he was, they were fighting for a very long time and he gets wounded and he knows he's going to die. But he's trying to avoid suffering. You know, he's trying to avoid suffering. He's dying. And then he has no other option. He asks one of his men to kill him. And they refuse. They refuse because, you know, he's the king. This is treason. They refuse to kill him. So then he decides to kill himself with a sword. And But here's something interesting later on. You know, one of the Amalekites come by. They see his sons dead. They see him dead. And he decides that he will take the credit hmm. for his death. You know, he's thinking, you know, if I go to David, the guy who Saul has been chasing, mm-hmm. you know, the guy who should probably be the rightful king. If I go to him and I say, hey, I killed Saul, that guy who's been bugging you this whole time, the guy who's been causing you nothing but pain and misery, he's going to he's gonna reward me. You know, I might get a new spot in the kingdom. I might be an advisor. Yeah. I might get a lot of gold. He's motivated by selfishness mm-hmm. here to tell a lie. Yeah. So he goes to David and David is like, tell me, tell me how the battle is going. Yeah. I need to know, like, how is Saul? How is Jonathan? And what's interesting is if the guy was smart, he might have been able to pick up that David isn't asking because he wants to know they're dead. He's asking because he's worried about them. Yeah, he's genuinely interested. Yeah. So the guy, you know, he continues with his lie. The Malachite, he says, well, you know, I was walking through the battlefield and I came across Saul and he was he was on a, a spear. He was wounded really bad. And he asked me, please, just just kill me. Mm-hmm. And so I did it. And I brought you his crown and I brought you his arm bracelet. You're next on the kingdom. Here you go. Put it on. You're the king now. You have power. And I think what we can draw from this is that sin will offer you what your selfish part of you wants. Mm-hmm. And will offer you the easy way out. Mm-hmm. And will offer you something that seems good. Yeah. It speaks to your insecurities. He probably thought, hey, you know, David has been looking for this kingdom for a long time. I'll give him the power. And this is exactly what sin did and how, what Satan does when he comes to Jesus and he's in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. I'll give you all of this? Absolutely. He offered him the world. And this is what sin will do to us. And then what does David do at this time? He doesn't fall for it. You know, he says, oh, you're, you have accused yourself take him and execute him because he has killed the Lord's anointed. David shows that he's not going to let his selfishness, his insecurities rule over him. Yeah. He's not going to let the Amalekites in his life rule over him. Yeah. So we see here how David takes a stand. You know, let us, let us remember that the Amalekites represented Esau. Here's the thing. Jacob wanted the birthright. Mm Mm-hmm. And he didn't trust that God could do it for him. The sin that he commits speaks to his distrust of God and it speaks to what he wants and it speaks to his insecurities. I'm never going to get the birthright. My father's never going to give it to me. He's going to give it to Esau. I need to move now. Yeah. But David, he ends the cycle. Yeah, he does. He says, God will honor the promise to me in his time. In his time. Yeah. He doesn't rejoice at the death of one who God had anointed. 
he is firm in his belief that God's promises will be kept. Absolutely. So now let's go ahead and go back to the beginning of the story. God will honor our choices. Yeah, he will. You know, many times um, as Christians, we, we always have this battle. You know, we want, when things are difficult with God, we want to go back to sin because at some point we had a good. You know, we kind of blur out all the negative, all the hurt, all the pain. Kind of like, you know, people in an abusive relationship do. Mm -hmm. I've had friends who have suffered in that. And when they break up with the person, they'll have like almost this weird longing to go back and say, oh, it was so good though. You know, he was so nice or she mm -hmm. was so nice. And I'm like, yeah, but didn't this and this happen? And didn't you call me one night because you said he did this or she did that? Right. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. But they remember the good moments. They remember the good moments. And look, you know, going back to the experience the children of Israel had, every single time they had a bad moment, they remember, oh, they didn't remember the bondage, but they said, hey, we had food. And it was a really good food. Yeah. And they want to go back. Sin is an abusive relationship. It'll dig its claws into you. And, you know, it'll, it'll feed your insecurities. It'll feed the selfish part of you. It will give you power. It'll give you power. So it's emotionally abusive. But it's also very manipulative because yeah. it wants control. Yeah. It wants to control who you are and what controls you. It's going to put things in your life that you are going to surrender to. And that's exactly what happens with God's people when the Amalekites attack. They attack the weakest points. He knows what the weakest points are and he therefore attacks them. Yeah. And he's successful. You know, he's and he was successful. And we learned that the only way that we can be victorious is when we go to God on our knees. Because God's relationship is a completely different type of relationship. You know, it's fully realized love. Mm -hmm. It's a type of love that wants to be there with you no matter what. You know, there's a prophet, Hosea, who's told to marry a prostitute. Yeah. And God says, this is what my love with Israel is like. This is how my people treat me. And I still love them. Yeah. He tells this prophet, you know, you, your wife is going to be sold. You need to go buy her back. You know, and this woman has cheated on him and has left him and has done horrible things to him. And God says, this is how my love with Israel, with my people, with you is. Yeah. You hurt me. You, you cheat on me. You run away to your abusive ex. Yeah. And I still love you. And yeah. I'm still here when you need me. And that's, I think that is difficult for us to understand because I put myself in God's place. Imagine that you're in a relationship with somebody that only come to you when they're in financial struggles, yeah. when they need uh, emotional advice. And when things are a little difficult, they go back. Can you imagine how many, how many times would we endure that? I would say probably once. If we're smart, once. Once. But many times, this is what God does over and over again. God's people were going back and forth, back and forth. And... You know, basically what God wants to, to tell us is that he wants to enter into the, a relationship with us in the same way, you know, that the marriage vow says. Yeah. You know, you know, when somebody is getting married, just imagine God coming to you and asking you, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to marry you. And he's saying, you know, I want to have and to hold you from this day forward for better and for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health to love and to cherish you till death do us apart. So God wants to marry you. He wants to have this intimate connection with you. And you know, the wedding vows, they say till death do us part. Yeah. That's not a thing with God. God wants to have an eternal, deep, 
loving relationship with you. He wants to get to know you. He wants to, for you to fall in love with him because not because he forces you, because you made the choice. But we keep telling God things are too complicated in my life right now. I, you know, I still like things in the world. I still like some things I, that give me momentary comfort. You know, kind of like an open relationship. Yeah. yeah. We want to be able to, you know, go to church, sing the songs, be in those happy moments with God. But when it comes to sickness, when it comes to being poor, when it comes to being broken, we blame him because we're in those situations. Mm. And we say, now I'm going to go back to that abusive ex. I'm going to go back to my sin because we had some happy moments because we had some quote unquote happy moments. God says, all right, but I need you to know that even though you say things are complicated, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, will I continue to extend my faithful love to you?